Hello, and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Jason Bridges, professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, and he's here to talk to us about contextualism. Jason Bridges, welcome. Thank you. So I guess the obvious question to begin with is, what is contextualism? Well, in contemporary discussions, contextualism is used as a label for like a really sprawling family of views, and it's hard to find a common thread like among all of them. But I suppose what you might call mainstream contextualist views have a couple things in common. And the ground floor thing they have in common is that they are all claims about when the things people say are true and when they're false. In other words, they're claims about the truth conditions of utterances. A truth condition being a condition under which something is true, and so correlatively false. And an utterance being typically an utterance of a sentence, like a sentence of English. There's a side issue here, which we might do well just to set aside at least for the moment, though maybe we can come back to it. And that issue is, what exactly is thought to possess the truth conditions that contextualists talk about? There's various possibilities. So you might think that an uttered sentence itself can be true or false, and so can have a truth condition. You might think that the saying of the sentence can be true or false and so have a truth condition. You might think that what is claimed or asserted in the saying of a sentence might itself have a truth condition. You might think these things are actually distinct and possibly can come apart. And so there's room for contextualists to disagree about, to make different claims about which sort of truth condition they're talking about. But as I say, let's set that aside for now. Just talk about the truth conditions of utterances. And so if we do that, then what all these mainstream contextualist views have in common is they claim that truth conditions of utterances depend upon the context of the utterance. Not just on the uttered sentence, but on features of parameters involved in a given utterance of that sentence. Now, that is at least sometimes the case, with at least some utterances and some sentences has long been acknowledged by people. So take the sentence, I am cold. So suppose I say now, I am cold. What's the truth condition of my utterance of that sentence? Well, as I would put it, it's that I am cold, right? What I say is true if and only if I am cold. Now you, Mark, you say, I am cold. You utter the same sentence. What's the truth condition of your utterance of that sentence? Well, it's true or false if and only if you, Mark, are cold, not me, Jason. Or similarly, if three hours from now I were to say, I am cold, then the truth condition of that utterance would be whether or not I'm cold at that moment three hours from now. So we have three different truth conditions, but the same sentence in each case. So clearly the truth conditions of the utterance depends not just on the uttered sentence and properties that that uttered sentence has in and of itself, but on features of the context of utterance. In particular, clearly in this case, the speaker and the time of utterance. So as I say, that, that sort of phenomenon obtains has long been acknowledged by anyone who thinks about language at all. Contextualists tend to claim that there's more context dependence and context dependence in places where people haven't traditionally recognized there to be. And so a contextualist might claim that utterances of sentences involving the word no, that is K-N-O-W, or good or green, have truth conditions that depend upon features of the context of utterance. So not just words like I or you or here or now, but other words. Radical contextualists will claim that, in fact, whatever the sentence is, whatever the words are, you're going to have context dependence. So... I guess in a, in a very minimal sense, we're all contextualists if we recognize the kind of linguistic phenomena that you were talking about earlier, so the case of cold. 
but then more radical contextualists want to apply that kind of thinking to other sorts of sentences. So it seems like there's a variety of ways to be a contextualist. I wonder if you could give us some examples of the so the more radical forms of contextualism. How, just how far does this go, and what kind of an example would we be talking about? Yeah, so if you take contextualism to name the view that for at least some sentences, different utterances of the same sentence will have different truth conditions, then, depending on the notion of truth conditions you're working with and that issue that we bracketed earlier, everyone is a contextualist. The sorts of sentences that are hotly debated in the contextualist literature, they run a gamut. So let's start with one that's seen as not that controversial, but is nonetheless a step forward from the point about indexical words like I. And perhaps I could also illustrate the characteristic form of argument that contextualists give in defending their particular theses. So here's a case. It's due to Marc Richard. This woman, Mary, wins a million dollars. And let's suppose this is a million dollars after tax. She gets to take home a million dollars. And let's say he doesn't really talk about this. He he mentioned she's a New Yorker, but let's say that before this, she was drawing a modest, but not totally insignificant salary by New York standards. So say she got $40,000 a year. She didn't have a huge debt. Suddenly she comes into a million dollars in wealth, in addition to whatever she had. Now, Dee Dee, talking with her friends, says, wow, Mary is rich now. Naomi, who moves in much more rarefied circles, says Mary is not rich at all. Now, Richard wants us to have the intuition that both of those utterances are true. Now, one, on the face of it, is negation of the other. And so there has to be some explanation of how they could both have different truth conditions. Of course, one way in which two utterances of the same sentence can have a different truth value is if the relevant facts are specified to change. So, like, imagine a possible world in which I'm married and I say, I'm married. Now imagine a possible world in which... I'm not married, and I say, I'm married. The second utterance of that sentence is false, and the first one is true. There's a difference in truth value, but there's no need to posit a difference in truth conditions, because what has changed is the relevant worldly fact. What has changed in particular is whether that condition, which we can imagine to be univocal across the two cases, was satisfied. So Richard's point is not just that there is, in this case, a sameness of truth value between an utterance of a sentence and an utterance of its negation, but that there's no difference in the relevant facts such as they are. So if there's going to be, if it's going to make sense that the sentence as uttered by Didi, Mary is rich, and the negation of that sentence as uttered by Naomi are both true, there has to be a change in the truth conditions. And he thinks in general that utterances making claims about wealth using the word rich have truth conditions that vary with the context. And in particular, he thinks the relevant parameter is the standard of wealth that the people in the conversation deploy in applying the term. So what's not in question in this case, and what speaks to a general observation about people, is that well-off people have more stringent standards for the application of rich. They're disposed to apply it in a different way than less well-off people. In particular, they use a more stringent standard. These standards are going to be vague. It's going to be impossible to specify them exactly, but let's Let's say that for Naomi and her peers, you have to make upwards of 10 million or more to be said by them to be rich, to count as rich. And that number is a lot, lot lower for Didi and her friends. And so Richard wants to say, look, the conversational standards for application of rich vary in these two cases. And so we should think, so do the truth conditions. The truth conditions are fixed by this difference in use, different significance that the term has for the participants in the two respective conversations. So that's supposed to be pretty non-controversial. A somewhat more controversial case, and one that is very much discussed, is the word no. And so 
epistemological contextualism, as it's often called, is the claim that the truth conditions of a knowledge description, where you understand a knowledge description as an assertive utterance of a sentence of the form S knows that P, or S doesn't know that P, that the truth conditions of knowledge descriptions depend upon the context of utterance. And a case that is very often discussed due to Keith DeRose to illustrate this point is this. It's called, I think, the bank case. Keith and his wife have picked up their paychecks on a Friday, and they're driving to the bank to deposit them. But there's a huge line, and so Keith says, ah, you know what, I'll just, I'll drop them off tomorrow. And his wife says, but tomorrow is Saturday, how do you know the bank is open? And he says, I do know the bank is open, I was there two Saturdays ago and it was open. That's the first scenario. Second scenario, Keith and his wife are on the way to deposit their paychecks on a Friday, and it's really important that they get that money in before Monday. Maybe they have a bill coming due, and they need that money. So they get to the bank, and the line is very long, and Keith says, I'll just deposit the check tomorrow. And his wife says, but tomorrow is Saturday. And Keith says, yeah, but I was there two Saturdays ago, and it was open. And she says, well, but how do you know that it hasn't changed its hours? Banks can sometimes change their hours. And he says, you know, you're right. I don't know that the bank will be open tomorrow, so we should do it now. So here we have a case in which in the first scenario, Keith said, I know that the bank is open tomorrow. And in the second scenario, he said, I don't know that the bank is open tomorrow. Negation of the sentence originally uttered. And we're supposed to have the intuition, again, that both of these utterances are true. The claim is then that the relevant facts, the conditions, haven't changed in the world, so what must have changed is the truth conditions, and that's got to be a function of the context of utterance, of such things as the fact that there's a practical importance attached to the self-attribution of knowledge in the second case that there isn't in the first case, and perhaps also to the fact that a doubt was raised in the second case that wasn't raised in the original case. Now, third example, as representative of truly radical contextualism, Charles Travis is perhaps the person most well-known for this. He argues that for any sentence, you can think of two cases where intuitively the world remains the same, but we want to ascribe different truth values, or to take the other kind of case, we have a sentence in its negation and we want to ascribe the same truth value. And so it's going to have to be a matter of changing truth conditions. And a famous example he gives to bring this out is the case of Pia. So Pia has a maple tree, and of course the leaves of a maple tree are red. She believes that the color of tree leaves ought to be green. So she paints all the leaves green. And she says, ah, good. The leaves in my tree are green now. Then a botanist friend of hers calls her and says, hey, do you have any green leaves? I'm doing a study in green leaf chemistry. And she says, yes, the leaves in my tree are green. Here she said the same sentence twice, but we're supposed to have the intuition that in the first case it was true, and in the second case her utterance was false. Again, nothing has changed in the world the utterance, both utterances purport to report upon, must be a change in truth conditions. And he thinks that once we see what's going on there, and we can talk more about what he does think is going on there and what might be going on there. We'll see that that kind of possibility generalizes fully. So it seems like we've described a continuum. At one end of the continuum is something completely uncontroversial, the idea that the meaning of a sentence containing certain pronouns like I and you is dependent on the context in which it's uttered. And then at the other end, we have this idea that it's almost as though every word is like one of those indexical words, like here or now or I. I mean, you might, prior to hearing the argument about different senses of the word green as applied to leaves, before having heard that, you might have thought, well, there's sort of a core of what a sentence means that gets there automatically based on the meanings of the words or what the words standardly mean and how they combine to give you the standard meaning of a sentence. Maybe that basic core doesn't vary. You know, whenever I say, the cat is on the mat, 
maybe which cat I'm talking about will change depending on the context. But nonetheless, there's something that's common to all occasions of uttering the cat is on the mat. You know, the cat is on the mat can never mean the cat is up in the air or whatever. Mm -hmm. In this continuum we're describing, maybe as we go farther and farther up it, we're sort of stripping away more and more from that basic core of what a sentence means as it were automatically, no matter when we utter it. Until finally, when we get to the last position you described, it seems like there's no core left. There's nothing common to the different utterances of the same sentence in different contexts. Well, what you said there at the end seems like it is the endpoint of the continuum, but you could stop short of that endpoint and still count as a radical contextualist in the sense that I was talking about. But yeah, the dynamic you're bringing out is exactly right. There's this natural thought that the meaning of an utterance, and again, there's going to be this question, which I've been bracketing about which meaning and how to understand that, but that the meaning of or content of an utterance depends, broadly speaking, upon two things. It depends upon linguistic meaning. So the thought that the sentence you utter is an agglomeration of words that already have meaning, quite independently of this context. They have meaning, as it's sometimes said, in the language, or as it's sometimes put in a more fancy way, they have conventionally encoded meanings. And they're going to continue to have those meanings when you're done talking. And those meanings, surely the thought is, play some role in determining content. On the other hand, there's the context. Someone could believe that context plays a much larger role in fixing utterance content than had heretofore been assumed. And perhaps think that even in the case of every utterance, it plays some role. And still think that meaning in the sense of linguistic, conventionally encoded meaning, continues to play a role. You might think, and this is I think what Travis does think, that it imposes some limits. Not every sentence can be used to say everything. It's just that, given the meaning of the sentence that it has independently, it's entirely underdetermined which of an indefinite number of things you might say. There's also an indefinite number of things you simply can't use that sentence to say. You can't use the sentence, the cat is on the mat, and still be speaking English to say the dog is in the tree. But there's a whole variety of different ways of understanding the claim that the cat is on the mat, or a given utterance of that, and there's no way of specifying them once and for all, and it's all very open-ended. Those are characteristic radical contextualist thoughts. There is then, going beyond Travis, there are people who think that, or at least they say things that imply that really linguistic meaning plays no role at all. And in effect, you could use any sentence to say anything. We don't, in fact, for the most part, but we could. And in that point, yes, it becomes quite unclear what role there is for linguistic meaning strictly understood at all. Right. And it seems like, at least on the face of it, that raises questions about, well, if a sentence can mean absolutely anything, then how do we understand one another if there are no standard conventions by which we do so? Yes, it, there is that worry. That is a worry that this kind of contextualist is often saddled with. Doesn't it make it a more of a challenge to understand what people are saying? You've advanced several criticisms of contextualism. What do you think is wrong with any of the arguments you've just described? Let's start with what I characterized as the, the least controversial, the rich example. I think there is a huge leap, a tacit leap at work in arguments for contextualism that have the form that I was just describing. And in fact, that leap is well illustrated by what Richard says about the, the case of Mary. I think the starting point, the, what's supposed to motivate and underwrite the intuitions we're supposed to have is the idea that there's a kind of content or meaning or something at any rate that has truth conditions associated with an utterance that is closely tied to the point of the utterance. The point of an utterance being the point that it has for the speaker, 
and for his or her audience, for the discursive participants. So the thought is that content is tied to point. And then what is going to determine the point of an utterance? Well, it's going to be such things as the interest, focus, directions of attention, expectations, and so forth of the participants in the conversation. So call that idea the context principle. People have derived from Frege a principle called the context principle, which says something completely different, but it works for this too. Let's say the context principle is the view that the content of an utterance, again, in some sense of content, will need to spell out, and issues arise there. I keep mentioning that. But perhaps better put it this way. There is a kind of content that is determined by, or at least dependent on, the interest, focus, and expectations of the conversational participants. At least in part, because it might also be a function of linguistic meaning and so forth. Okay, I don't want to challenge that principle. There seems to me a lot of plausibility in that principle. The assumption is rather, well, perhaps the best way to bring it out would be to reconstruct what I think must be the reasoning behind Richard's conclusions in the case of Mary. So we start with the idea that the content of those two utterances, of Didi's utterance and Naomi's utterance, are in part determined by the interests, focus, and expectations of the people involved. And then the thought is that leads us immediately to the conclusion that the truth conditions are going to align with the prevailing conversational standards for the application of the term rich. So the idea would be something like the point of the utterance for Naomi is in some way or another to relate Mary to the degrees of wealth visible in her social world. And the point of Didi's utterance is to relate Mary to the degrees, gradations, quantities of wealth visible in her social world. And there are very different kinds of wealth at stake in those two social worlds. And so those two points are different. And so we ought to think of them as just making different claims, and those claims are in particular tied to the prevailing conversational standard. So that illustrates what I think is the unfounded assumption. The unfounded assumption is that given the context principle, given the idea that contents depends upon point, point depends upon interest and focus, that the interests and focus that people will actually in fact have in discourses is going to be such that the context principle licenses tying the truth conditions to the prevailing conversational standards. The assumption is that the interests, focus, directions of attention, and all that stuff is such that there is always going to be a match between actual dispositions, to use the term, the prevailing conversational standards, and truth conditional content. And it's just that that I think can be wrong, is wrong, and in fact is very often wrong. For example, it's wrong about discourse about wealth on the part of wealthy people. So let's ask ourselves why someone like Naomi might be disposed to deny that Mary is rich. What sort of interests focus might be at stake there? Well, one possibility, and this is a possibility that is in fact realized in the actual world, this is in fact the case for many rich people, is that there is a desire to deny of oneself that one is rich. Very often, rich people are interested in denying that they are rich. And so if they're going to be able to do that, they need to have standards for the use of rich that they deploy such that they count as not rich. And since they are in fact rich, or at least at any rate, that's what I would say using the word in this context, those are going to have to be pretty demanding standards. Now, why might they want that? One possibility is that doing so helps to cultivate a self-conception as a salt-of-the-earth, hard-working, common person, a middle-class person. It's a feature of the peculiar populism, at least in the United States, attendant to thinking about wealth, that tremendous value is placed on acquiring wealth and privilege, but then denying an effect that you'd have it. So that's one interest. Another interest 
that a rich person might have in denying that she is rich. And so more generally using the term rich so that she doesn't fall into the class of people she calls rich is to justify opposition to certain kinds of economic policy. There was a huge debate about the estate tax in the U.S. like seven years ago, something like that. And opponents of the estate tax regularly referred to alleged victims of the estate tax as middle class, as not rich, when these people in fact were in the 98th or 99th percentile of wealth in the country. Now, so take those two interests one might have, that Naomi, as a wealthy person, might have in using the term rich such that, in fact, Mary will be precluded from the category of rich, and so will Naomi herself. It's crucial for those utterances to do their work that the truth conditions be the same as the truth conditions associated with utterances of sentences involving rich in public discourse about wealth. I mean, what matters is to present oneself to take the first interest as a not-rich middle-class person in the same sense in which a politician will evoke the wonderful nature of the middle class in a speech, not in some insanely inflated sense of the middle class where 99.5% of people count as being in the middle class in the country, but in just the sense, whatever that is at stake in public discourses. In that discourse, the standards for application of rich are not the same as in Naomi's conversational circle. They're less strict. And the truth conditions of those utterances do not correspond to those standards either. Or take the other interest, the interest in in, um, opposing certain economic policies. If a person who in fact has $5 million in wealth writes to her local paper, I'm not rich and the estate tax is going to ruin my family, that utterance is only relevant to the debate about the estate tax if it's not equivocal, if it's not an equivocation. That is, if what she's saying to be so in her contribution to the debate about herself is the negation of what someone in the public discourse more generally might say in saying that someone who has $5 million is rich. If it's not denying that claim, then it's simply irrelevant. It's just an equivocation. So if an utterance on the part of a rich person to the effect that I am not rich is to serve the two desires that I posited, then in fact the truth conditions of the utterance need to float free of the prevailing conversational standards. They need to correspond to the truth conditions at stake in larger discourses. In effect, if we think of those two interests as being in a play, then the relevant discourse for thinking about the point is not just the local discourse where those conversational standards obtain, but a larger discourse where different standards obtain. Uh, and then just to mention very quickly one other hypothesis, that's to talk about the interests of the wealthy. There's also the question of talk of focus, or directions of attention that someone like Richard deploys. It's an interesting fact about being rich in this country that there's almost a guarantee that there's going to be someone in your social circle who's vastly richer than you, no matter how rich you are. If you have 10 million, you're going to know someone who has 100 million. If you have 100 million, you're going to know someone who has 2 billion. And there's just a well-known fact that psychologists have been aware of for perhaps almost 100 years, that when assigning a quantity, a gradable quantity to a given object, a person's judgment is going to be very strongly affected by the amount of that quantity exhibited by objects in a contextually salient class. So the most famous classical example of this is an experiment in which you show a person a bunch of lines and then you ask them to say in inches how long a given line is. It's very well established experimentally that a person is going to judge a line to be much longer when it's in a context of shorter lines than that very same line when it's in a context of much longer lines. Now, in that case, we want to say that that's not a matter of changing truth conditions. It's not as if the first time 
the person says, that's six inches. And the second time when the person says, that's not six inches, that somehow inch means something different, that in at least one of those two cases, the person's utterance shouldn't be interpreted as talking about inches as demarcated on a ruler. That seems just crazy. Rather, it's explained in terms of bias, and there are well-known mechanisms for explaining cognitive bias in the psychological literature. It's a debate. It's not at all clear to me why we shouldn't think of the stricter conversational standards that prevail among the wealthy as itself a matter of bias. Highly salient in their context are people who have enormous sums of wealth, people who are really not at all salient for someone like Didi. And that could just have the effect of biasing their judgments. And if that's what's going on, there's no reason to posit a context-dependent shift in truth conditions between the two utterances, or at least no reason has been given. So just in summary, and I think that this case is illustrative in that this, if you accept the context principle, if you accept that interest, focus, and attention, and so forth, at least in part, determine truth conditions, then you really ought to think hard about what people's interests and directions of attention are likely to be and how they're constituted and why they matter and how they matter. And if you do that, you're not going to automatically, every time, arrive at this easy result that prevailing conversational standards correspond to truth conditions. That's really interesting. So, in a way, your reply to the contextualist is that they're not paying enough attention to the context, or there's certain aspects of the context that are going to fail to make sense. So perhaps, in the example we've been talking about, you want to say, well, look, the following conversation could take place. Dee Dee says, Mary's rich now. Naomi says, no, Mary's not at all rich. Dee Dee says, no, yeah, she is. And then goes on to explain to Naomi, look, you've been living in this world. I know why you would want to say that. I understand Mm. why you said it, but you're wrong. And then maybe they go on to have a debate. It looks like on the contextualist view we described, that kind of debate's impossible. You just can't have that kind of conversation. If Dee Dee comes back and says, no, Naomi, you're wrong. She is rich she's somehow confused she's failing to understand something we would have to step in and inform her that no these assertions had different truth conditions Mm -hmm. and that seems crazy that seems to rule out a kind of conversation that in fact we do have it's important that we're able to have so that seems right but what if the contextualist in this case were to come back and say well perhaps so perhaps there are certain conversations that you could be having where you don't want to say that the truth conditions are different But maybe there are still cases in which you do. So, you know, maybe there really is a case we can imagine. And maybe this is what we intuitively imagine when we think of that case is the case where Dee Dee says Mary's rich now. Naomi says Mary's not at all rich. And someone else also participating in the conversation turns up and says, ah, this is interesting. Well, clearly, in some sense, you're both saying something true. And Mm -hmm. isn't that an interesting fact about the case here? So what if the contextualists were to maintain that, to weaken their position somewhat, to say, well, fine, maybe we don't want to say this about all such conversations, but still some such conversations. And that's significant. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've brought up a lot of stuff. Let me try to take it in order. So first, I quite agree with the moral that you were trying to extract from what I was saying. And the moral is that contextualists don't in general pay sufficient attention to actual contexts. So they think that interests, focus, directions of attention matter for determining truth conditions. And then they give at most the most superficial attention to an inquiry into what those things might actually be in actual cases of discourse. And I think that that, I mean, that's a harsh charge, but I think it's more or less true. And one way to put it is that actual contextualists in the literature have tended not to be methodological contextualists. I think Wittgenstein, we could talk about this or not, was a methodological contextualist. That's one of the best prisms with which to think about his later work, in fact. But a methodological contextualist tries to think really hard about what the context of utterance is, understood to include these factors like interest. 
and then to think about the content of the utterance from that perspective. So that's the first thing. Second thing is contextualists recognize that they have trouble with intuitions about disagreement. That's one of the big issues discussed in the literature. You're absolutely right that that's of concern to them. Because we want to say, at least in a lot of these cases, everybody, even people who have the contextualists' intuitions about truth conditions and don't examine those intuitions, nonetheless have the intuition that there's a kind of disagreement, perhaps between Naomi and Didi. And so the question is how to understand that. Contextualists try to say some things about that. It's not clear how successful they are. There's a third issue that your particular case brings up, which is what to say about cases where people who have been operating in conversations where there are different prevailing standards meet up and then have a third conversation. The issue of disagreement is to some extent detachable from that because you can just have the intuition, whether they're face-to-face or not, that they disagree with each other. That seems like a sensible claim to make. But then there's, as it were, a different kind of disagreement. There's the face-to-face kind where you actually dispute. And then there's a question about how to understand that. And once again, that's a difficulty for contextualists, and there are things they try to say about that. And then finally, just given the kind of worry that I raised, the conclusion, the moral to draw, is not that truth conditions never vary with interest, focus, or attention, or so forth. It's not even that sometimes they vary with prevailing conversational standards, that that's the right way to think about the interest and so forth. I actually think that sometimes they will. I mean, granting that there is a kind of content such that the context principle is legitimate. I do think that sometimes we're going to want to say that that kind of content varies in accord with prevailing conversational standards. There are some cases. The point is rather that a question arises here. Contextualists just assume that content is going to vary with prevailing conversational standards, and that is what I would want to question. And then moreover, it seems to me the kinds of cases that philosophers are interested in, freighted terms like no or good or whatever, are just those cases where it's least easy to just immediately move to the conclusion that the truth condition is going to vary with prevailing conversation standards. Because it's just there where questions about what interest or focus might be in play becomes most difficult and challenging, and where there's this pressure towards seeing the utterance as in some way or another speaking to a larger context than that of the immediate conversation. So you talked earlier on about how various arguments to the effect that the meaning of the word no varies across contexts namely the example of Keith and whether he knows that the bank is going to be open on Saturday. Now, some philosophers seem to think that this observation about variability in the meaning of the word no can help us address traditional philosophical worries about skepticism. How does that sort of argument tend to work? So epistemological contextualism, we can understand it as the view that truth conditions of a knowledge attribution vary with the context of utterance. With what parameters? One idea is that it varies with practical interest. The more important knowing something is for some meaningful practical project, the stricter the conditions you have to meet in order to count as knowing. That's a thought. That's actually a thought that, we probably don't want to get into this, but it's just worth noting, that can be accommodated by a non-contextualist view. It can be accommodated by a view that thinks that the state of knowing, well, there's various ways to spell this out, but one way is that to know something is to be in a position to use it in practical reasoning, and for that not to be an irresponsible act on your part. That's going to mean, perhaps, that whether you know at a given time depends upon the relevant kinds of practical deliberation in play for you at that time. And so you might have a view in which, in effect, knowledge becomes, in fact, partly constituted by its relationship to practical deliberation for you, and then it's going to vary with not just with, say, the evidence you have, but with the issues that you face in your practical deliberation. In any case, we could set that aside. 
a little bit more relevant and more obviously bearing on the issue of skepticism is the idea that another parameter is the doubts raised in the context. And so a lot of epistemological contextualists want to say that the standards for knowing become stricter in a conversation where certain doubts have been raised. Because in raising them, you make them live doubts. And you might have a view of knowledge to the effect of, or at least it has the implication, that in order to know that P, you have to be able to rule out any live doubts, that it is not the case that P. And so as doubts are introduced, you have to be able to rule them out. If they hadn't been introduced, then they weren't live. Don't need to rule them out. You can be truly said to know. But once they have been introduced in a conversation, then they become live. And if you're not, you can't rule them out. As Keith couldn't rule out his wife's doubt about predicated on the thought that banks sometimes change their hours, then in that context, you don't know. Perhaps even possible there to give that a non-contextualist interpretation, but we can set that aside too. So what happens in a skeptical argument? One of the things that undeniably happens in a traditional argument for skepticism, such as Descartes, is that a doubt is introduced that is very deep and broad-ranging. Descartes asks himself how he knows that he's sitting by the fire, given that he might be dreaming. And then he ups the ante even from there. Now that sort of doubt, you might be dreaming, is not ordinarily raised in discussions about whether people know this or that. So Descartes claims to know that there's a fire in the study. His wife says, how do you know? And he says, well, I was just in there. It hasn't burned out in the last five seconds. And if she were to say, well, how do you know? Well, in fact, she wouldn't say, how do you know you weren't dreaming? That just wouldn't be raised. But the skeptic raises the doubt. And so if you think that that ratchets up the truth conditions of the attribution, then that makes it the case that in that context, it might be so, and in fact, often will be so, that it would be true to say that you don't know something, when in a context in which that doubt hadn't been raised, it would be true to say that you do. Now, how does that resolve skepticism? Well, it's not clear. But one implication of this view is that the skeptic can truly say Descartes doesn't know that he's sitting by a fire. And nonetheless, that not have any implications for our ordinary knowledge attributions. Because our ordinary knowledge attributions have different truth conditions from the attributions in play in the skeptical context where those doubts have ratcheted up the truth conditions of knowledge attributions. And so what the skeptic says, when the skeptic says Descartes doesn't know that he's sitting by a fire, could be true. And what Descartes' wife says when she says Descartes knows there's a fire in the study or Descartes knows that he's sitting by a fire in the study, whatever it is, could also be true. And so it's this peculiar orientation towards skepticism, because it's not a matter of claiming that the skeptical conclusion is false. It's rather an attempt to immunize ordinary knowledge attributions from any implications of skepticism being true. The skeptical argument creates a context that, in effect, renders skeptical claims helpless to defeat or undermine or challenge ordinary claims to know. Now, one worry is that, well, the, I guess the, only, the worry that I'll mention, it's probably most pertinent given what we were just talking about, is that it seems to me that in order to make that at all satisfying, a satisfying account of what's going on in skepticism, you need to ask why hyperbolic doubts are introduced in the skeptical context. This is just another case in where one wants to ask, what exactly are the interests or directions of attention at work? in this or that discursive context. And here we're not focusing on the ordinary context, we're focusing on the philosopher's context. Contextualists just take for granted that skeptics introduce these insane doubts, Hume or Descartes or whoever. But why? Why did they do that? Something needs to be said about that. And my suspicion is that once you start thinking about what those interests are, it starts to become more and more impossible to interpret the skeptical conclusion in such a way that it doesn't have implications for ordinary claims. 
Because, for example, take Descartes. What's Descartes' interest? Well, he says that his interest in the meditations is to kind of clear away all the stuff that he knew as a child or was taught growing up, some of which has turned out not to pan out. Just kind of clear it all away, have a new foundation for knowing. So far, there's no indication that he is interested in it being true or false to say that he knows something in a way where that will then diverge and have no implications for ordinary claims to know. If that has happened, the wool has been pulled over Descartes' own eyes. And so one has to ask how that could have come about and what motivates actually making a claim like that other than the desire to make ordinary claims insulated from skepticism. And I, it just seems to me that once you really think through those issues, and I've only just kind of stated this and not done it, that there's going to be real worries about making sense of the contextualist response. So there's an interesting form to the argument where, in a way, the contextualist could be seen to be appealing to a fairly common intuition, which is, look, no matter what goes on in the philosophy seminar room, outside the seminar room, we know what we know. Maybe inside, we, you know, we decide we don't know it, but there's a common intuition that would say, well, those are different worlds, and that, that might be seen to be grounding this contextualist argument. On the other hand, there's an equally reasonable thing to say, which is, well, what is the point of what goes on in the seminar room if it's not supposed to introduce some kind of worry? What's the point of someone like Descartes if it's not to say, well, you say out there that you know such and such, maybe you shouldn't, and here's some considerations to show why, and there the contextual solution looks like a kind of dodge at that point, that it's really not taking seriously the context in which Descartes makes the arguments that he makes. That seems to me exactly right. And to generalize the point just slightly, and I'm not sure I can back this up, and I'm glad we're finishing up now, so then you can't press me on it. But it sometimes seems to me that contextualists are making pragmatics. That is, the theory of the features of meaning that are not semantic, which is to say features that aren't tied to, determined by, under the control of meanings of linguistic expressions. That, that sometimes trying to make pragmatics do what philosophers used to think semantics could do. So philosophers used to think that there was, and some still do, but a lot of them used to think there was real sense to be made of the idea that there's a class of truth where you have truth in virtue of meaning alone, analytic truth. And nowadays it seems to me that a lot of contextualists think that a theory of conversational dynamics about how conversations unwind, where the principles are stated just in terms of conversations in general, discourse in general, no attention to the actual subject matter of given conversations, can explain for us why certain things are true and why certain things are not true by explaining why certain things are truth conditions and why they don't. And it seems to me that that's always going to be unsatisfying to us in the end. Because there's this fact about the conversation or discourse of the skeptic that certain doubts get raised. Now, you might have a principle in virtue of which that changes truth conditions, but we're always going to still have the question, if we want a really satisfactory explanation of the skeptical conclusion, why it's reached, maybe why it's wrong or confused, we always want to know why the conversation took those turns. And we want to know it in terms specific to the content of the conversation, not in terms of purely general pragmatic rules or principles. I just don't think in the end there's going to be a satisfying solution to any of these kinds of philosophical issues to be found there. Jason Bridges, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.